Welcome. Please accept John and Jim's invitations to join them as they once again ask each other, what do you think about? Hey, Jim, what do you think about the undead? I think that the undead make for fun reading and exciting what-if mental exercises. Like, what if I was in this situation and, you know? Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, vampires are my absolute rave fave reading, man. Dracula, Salem's Lot, Progeny of the Adder, I Am Legend, man. I can read and reread those books indefinitely. And I have reread each of them several times. And then you have stuff like Let the Right One In, They Thirst, Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat. But I don't really care for the rest of that series, the Anne Rice books. I read Queen of the Damned and I said, I'm done. Oh, yeah. And I was done. Then there's a couple I just found recently that I'm hoping to read. One is Theodore Sturgeon's Some of Your Blood. The second is called Fledgling. It was written by Octavia Butler. But uh, I don't think you're wanting a reading list here. So long story short, uh, fun reading, but I don't think they're really real. And by the way, I dig the uh, Romero type zombies. But uh, if you think about it, they're really just vampires that eat flesh instead of drink blood, which makes sense because he was inspired by I Am Legend when he wrote the script for Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I personally have also loved the idea of vampires. Vampire movies were a staple of my local TV station's creature feature. Oh, yeah. I saw them all, and I'm certain I was totally twisted in, by them in my <laughs> youth. But I loved each and every one, particularly the Hammer vampire movies, because they always had buxom women running around in very sheer negligees. Exactly, yeah. So we're on the same page, brother. But when we talk about the undead, what we're really talking about is a really large classification of types of creatures, right? Essentially, though, these are creatures that have, should have died and yet act like they're alive. Yeah, dead things that aren't fully dead. Well, they're corpses reanimated by their own power or maybe sometimes power provided by an outside agency. Also, if you think about it, they could have physical bodies such as vampires, zombies, and mummies, but that turns out not to be a requirement. Ghosts and specters are also a kind of undead. I don't know why, but I never really lumped ghosts in with the undead. Probably because they aren't corporeal, but I can live with it. Or maybe I can undead with it. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe I can living dead with it? Uh, we better proceed. Jim, I think we should start our discussion with the granddaddy of all undead legends, the Vampire. So, really, one of the earliest references to it is uh, by a guy named Montague Summers and his work, The Vampire, His Kith and Kin. Remember, in an earlier podcast, we told you Kith meant friends. Yeah, synchronicity. Yeah, vampires have friends. Who knew? But he describes the vampire thusly. Throughout the whole vast shadowy world of ghosts and demons, there is no figure so terrible. No figure so dreaded and abhorred, yet dight with such fearful fascination as the vampire, who is himself neither ghost nor demon, but yet who partakes the dark nature and possesses the mysterious and terrible qualities of both. Vampires, oddly enough, though, occur in legends all over the world and for literally thousands of years. But just what 
is a vampire, because almost every nation has associated blood drinking with some kind of revenant or demon, from the ghouls of Arabia to the goddess Sequent of Egypt. Don Calumet's definition from his Treatise on Apparitions of Spirits and on Vampires, Volume 2, states that the vampire are, quote, men who have been dead for some considerable time. It may be for a long period, or it may be for a shorter period. And these issue forth from their graves and come to disturb the living, whose blood they suck and drain. These vampires appear visibly to men, and once they have gained a foothold, death generally follows. End quote. However, sometimes they're not dead, as in the case of an energy vampire. But they share a common attribute. They continue to live by absorbing some life essence from the living. How did they come to be? Is it transmitted via a bite, or is it a creature that always existed? Do their victims become vampires? Well, let's take a bite out of the legends and see if we can answer these questions. Do you want to start with some uh, basic background, John? And make it toothsome. <laughs> According to folklore, the vampire is a corporeal revenant that rises from the grave or their crypt each night to prey upon human beings, sucking their blood to sustain its own life. It possesses a will of its own and intelligence. But why would vampires be thought of as evil? Some biblical verses may answer that question for those of the Jewish and Christian faiths. Genesis 9.4 But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. I'm all for that. Blech. Leviticus 7.27 Whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. Leviticus 17.11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So clearly, they thought it was creepy to be feeding on blood. Yeah, don't do it. Vampire lore extends far into humanity's past, though. Ancient Greeks had to deal with the following examples. Emphasis, shape-shifting female creatures that seduced young men into marriage and then drank their blood. Secondly, the Lamia, a creature that would devour children. After the first century AD, the Lamia became a seductress, enticing young men and eating them. John Cuthbert Lawson, Greek folklorist, wrote, The chief characteristics of the Lamia, apart from their thirst for blood, are their uncleanliness, their gluttony, and their stupidity. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a young man, I'm being seduced by that, but... Eh. <laughs> I bet I could. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on... Well, yeah, I understand. And then there were sturges. According to Ovid, sturges were blood-sucking birds that attacked children. Man, it sucks to be a kid. It does. It sucks. Get it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Um, deriving their name from the Greek sturges, strigory are Romanian spirits that rise from the grave to feed upon human blood. They can also transform into animals and make themselves invisible. A person is in danger of becoming a striggery if he meets these conditions. If he's born as the seventh child of the same sex as all of his siblings. So the seventh daughter of seven daughters or the seventh son of seven sons. He leads a sinful life. He dies, sentenced to death and executed on the charge of perjury. If they die without getting married, if they commit suicide, or they die from a curse cast by a witch. Die without getting married? 
That's pretty harsh. According to Wikipedia, Romanians take the following steps to rid themselves of a strigary. Exhume the strigary, remove its heart, and cut it in two. Drive a nail in its forehead, place a clove of garlic under its tongue, smear its body with fat of a pig killed on St. Ignatius's day, then you turn its body face down so that if the strigary were to ever wake up, it's headed straight to the afterlife. Oof, that sounds like a good Saturday night. Well, except for the nail in the forehead part. Ooh, I don't know. In the mid-17th century, the Greeks come back into the vampire folklore with the Vrykolakis. Vrykolakis are not exactly traditional vampires, though. Rather than drink blood, they eat the flesh of their victims, especially savoring the liver. With a nice Chianti? Yeah. A person becomes a Vrykolakis after death due to the following. A sacrilegious lifestyle, being excommunicated, burial in unconsecrated ground, eating the meat of a sheep which had been wounded by a wolf or a werewolf. And some believed that the werewolf itself could become a powerful vampire after being killed and would retain the wolf-like bangs, hairy palms, and glowing eyes that it formerly possessed. <laughs> My mom told me you got hairy palms a different way. What does a Frankalakis do for kicks? They crawl from their graves and, well, they kind of wander around, engaging in poltergeist-styled activity, causing epidemics in the community. They knock on the doors and call out the resident's name. If it gets no reply the first time, it passes by without causing any harm. But if someone does answer the door, he or she will die a few days later and become another Vrykolakis. For this reason, there is a superstition present in certain Greek villages that one should not answer a door until the second knock. Legends also say the Vrykolakis crushes or suffocates the sleeping by sitting on them, much like a mare or an incubus. Since the Vrykolakis becomes more and more powerful if left alone, legends state that one should destroy its body. According to some accounts, this can only be done on Saturdays, which is the only day when the Vrykolakis rests in its grave. This may be done in various ways, the most common being exorcisms, impaling, beheading, chopping it up into pieces, and cremation. What do you do to end a vampire's nocturnal visitation? If you're unsure as to which grave contains the vampire, mount a virgin boy upon an equally young virgin stallion that has never stumbled and is completely black in color. <laughs> hey, did you just say mount a virgin boy? I thought the judge talked to you about that. <laughs> well, you know, we don't discuss that in public spaces, Jimmy. Okay. The horse is ridden then into the cemetery and across the rows of the graves. When the horse comes to a grave it refuses to cross, you found your vampire. But if that doesn't work and none of the victims recognize the creature, now you're just guessing. If he is found, Montague Summers, remember that guy we talked about earlier, recommends trying one of these remedies. Tie their big toes and thumbs together with string. <laughs> Tie yeah, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Stops me every time. That's what Cynthia does when I'm horny. TMI. Tie the feet together. You can drive a stake of aspen, hawthorn, or whitethorn through the creature's heart and into the back of the coffin. In other words, you nail them to the coffin. Drive a dagger that has been laid on an altar and blessed by a priest through the vampire's heart. 
Note, suggestions three and four, i.e. the stakes or the dagger, they must be done with one blow. Because if you use multiple blows, you're going to restore the creature to life. I'm never able to uh, do more than one blow. Yeah, I understand. After that, you're sleeping? Yep. After a single thrust piercing, behead the vampire with a sextant's spade and stuff the mouth full of garlic. I'm also uh, guilty of the single thrust piercing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cremate the body. If any lice, beetles, or snakes, or whatever, if they're trying to crawl out of the blaze, be sure to drive them back into the fire so that they're consumed. These are manifestations of the vampire as it attempts to escape. Then you gather the ashes and scatter them in the wind or toss them into a swiftly flowing river. Another thing to do is to dump millet seeds on the grave. Some traditions insist that vampires are are obsessive-compulsive and will be compelled to count all the seeds, which would keep him busy until sunrise, which will then bring about his demise. Lastly, in some Slavonic countries, a silver bullet, blessed by a priest, will kill a prowling vampire. You thought those were just for werewolves, didn't you? Silver bullet's good for uh, other stuff, too, my doctor says. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place to end this section on the Western vampire. Yeah. You know, as you said, the vampire was by no means restricted to Europe. The uh, the legend has fluttered its way all around the world. If we go to Asia, the Chinese actually have a widespread vampire tradition, and they call them the Cheng Shi. Their take on the creature is this. A demon would ensconce itself in an unburied or unprotected corpse. Thereafter, hijinks would ensue. They usually have eldritch red eyes and talons and a weird greenish hair that resembles mold that would cover their bodies. Here's a uh, traditional Chinese vampire story. Four travelers arrived at Shantung late one night. There were no rooms available, but the innkeeper said they could sleep in the little shed out back. Being exhausted, the travelers didn't complain and agreed to the arrangement. Oh, yeah. And the innkeeper forgot to tell them that his dead daughter's cadaver was being stored in that same shed. Yeah, it's it's it, that's why it's a bargain. Three of the travelers fell asleep immediately, but one felt something strange and couldn't sleep. Lucky for him, because he saw the curtain dividing the room in two pulled aside by a clawed hand, revealing a glowing eyed greenish animated corpse. The creature bent over each of the sleeping men and breathed into their faces, killing them. However, when it got to the man who was still awake, he feigned sleep and held his breath. The monster then returned to the space behind the curtain, after which the sole survivor leapt up and burst out the door. But unfortunately for him, the creature heard him make his escape and gave chase. So the guy runs into the forest, hides behind a tree, And when he thinks it's safe, he cautiously peeks around, like a dumbass, and was face-to-face with the animated corpse. It leapt at the man, who fortunately fell to the ground in a faint. In the morning, the corpse was found with its talons impaling the tree, and as a result, it couldn't free itself. The innkeeper, who had come looking for the man, cut off its head, ending its threat. Then a little below China, in Malaysia, they have two demons that exhibit vampiric tendencies. The first is the Lang Sur, or the Lang Suyar, 
which appears as a beautiful woman with long black hair, long fingernails, and a green robe. And, not to be forgotten, a hole in the back of her neck through which she sucks the blood of children. How do you get the hole in the back of your neck to suck anything? I don't know. I mean, you kind of lay on it backwards? Yeah, it's like you got to do the reverse cowboy or something. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Women who die in childbirth are susceptible to becoming laying sears. The prevention method is to fill the corpse's mouth with glass beads, put eggs in their armpits, needles in their palms, and all this combined makes it impossible for the corpse to speak or flap its arms to fly. If one does come across the Langsir, it can be dispatched by executing the following steps. Clip its fingernails, cut its hair short, and shove that hair into the hole in the neck, after which the Langsir will start to act like a normal human woman. Now, I'm telling you what, it ain't worth the effort. Second is the Penangalan, who also favors child victims, especially newborns. She is able to detach her head from her body, either due to being startled so badly she kicked her own head off, or by learning the trick after studying under a demon. You are seriously startled when you kick your own head off. The, uh, the head flies around looking for victims from whom she can drain blood. To keep her away, hang thorns on your windows and doorways. Her bloated intestines will become entangled in their barbs and capture her. Then I guess you kill her in the morning. I guess. Jim, why are her intestines distended? The answer to that is this. After her bloodlust is sated and her head returns to her body, the blood soaks down into the bowels and they swell as they will. Hmm. So basically she drinks too much blood and fills herself up. Yeah, or else feeds the rest of the body with it. In India... And man, I wish my father-in-law were still with us because in Hindu folklore, I found a trio of vampire-like demons, and I'm sure he could have told me a lot more about them. First, we have the Vitela, which is an evil spirit found hanging upside down in trees, planted in cemeteries, and uh, which likes to possess corpses. They tend to drive humans mad murder children, and cause miscarriages. One can protect himself from a vitela by chanting mantras or by simply staying the fuck out of a cemetery. Vitelas hold knowledge concerning the past, present, and future events as well as insight into human nature. Because of this, many sorcerers try to capture them and turn them into slaves, kind of like a, a genie. Yeah, it'd be useful to have that knowledge. Heck yeah. And then we have the Paseka. Pasekas traditionally hang out in cremation grounds, along with the aforementioned Vitelas and Butas, which are ghosts. Pasekas are shapeshifters and also possess the power of invisibility. They feed on human energy, like a kind of psychic vampire, and they like to eat human flesh. Sometimes, if the mood strikes, they will possess a human being or maybe just drive him mad. Anyone who sees a Paseka is doomed to die within nine months. They too can be driven off by the chanting of mantras. Lastly, 
The Tamil people of southern India have put up with the pay and the pay makiler. The pay are vampiric demons found on battlegrounds, and they feast on the blood of fallen warriors. The pay makiler is the female incarnation of the demon. She does a ritual dance as she devours bloodied corpses, tearing the flesh from wounded soldiers and is the more vicious of the two. So then let's talk about maybe, just maybe, historical vampires. Let's talk about the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. While she was not a vampire per se, that is, she was definitely a living mortal, and she did not always drink the blood of her victims, Elizabeth was certainly using blood for the same purposes as a vampire, to restore and maintain her life. She's rumored to have murdered 600 young women, exsanguating each and every one, bathing in their blood to maintain her youth. Now, this number may have been exaggerated, but she did undoubtedly kill many people. And this is her actual real story. I mean, she was a real person. So, Countess Elizabeth Bathory was born in Hungary during the latter part of the 16th century, around 1560. Throughout her childhood, Elizabeth suffered from seizures, the cause of which is unknown, but has been speculated to be either epilepsy or inbreeding of her parents because, you know, royals. I'm voting for inbreeding. Unfortunately for her future victims, a 16th century treatment for epilepsy was the rubbing of a non-epileptic's blood on the lips of the sufferer. Now, why was this unfortunate for her victims? This remedy might just have led her to believing that the blood of others worked as the cure for ailments. Remember, we have a long tradition of life is in the blood, right? Right. That's why we had blood sacrifices and things. So anyway, as was often the case in those times, a young Elizabeth, she was 15 years old. She was wed to Ferenc Nadeshi in an arranged marriage. As a wedding gift from Frenet's mother, the couple was given Castle Chenichi in the Carpathian Mountains. In 1578, he was named the commander of Hungary's army in their war against the Ottoman Empire. So he had to leave his wife alone. This also saddled Elizabeth with managing their business affairs, their lands, and their peasantry. Now, she may have always been cruel, or maybe the forced solitude twisted her brain, but it is said that Elizabeth was cruel to her servants, beating them frequently. Once, while one of the handmaids was combing Elizabeth's hair, the comb pulled, and Elizabeth struck the girl hard enough to bring blood, which dripped into Elizabeth's hand. Lo and behold, well, at least to Elizabeth's eyes, the skin touched by the blood appeared to have youthened as she wiped it away. This led to Elizabeth's daily draining of quantities of blood from her victims, i.e. servants, with which she would wipe down her body reminiscent of the aforementioned epilepsy treatment. Convinced that this blood was truly restoring her youth, Elizabeth began, with the aid of select servants, i.e. ones that she wasn't bleeding to death, to murder her young female servants, draining the girls of their blood, and then taking a full bath in the gore. Blah. Can you imagine that? No! I mean... Oh, God, it, it, once it would start to cool down, it would get clotty, and oh, God. I think it's probably more of a shower, right? Wouldn't you hang the body above your head, slice the, the jugular brain open, and just let it drain on you? No, they filled tubs, bathtubs. 
Some of the Countess's additional atrocities include driving needles into the fingers of the girls, slicing open their noses and lips, and whipping them with stinging nettles. Ah, me. She also had a penchant for biting their shoulders and breasts and burning their flesh and their genitals. I gated this girl. <laughs> as, we, as her need for more local girls to serve as castle's, quote, staff, rose, right? And as families realized that those who went off to the castle were never seen or heard from again, rumors of Bathory's atrocities began to circulate. Then she made the mistake of taking on a girl from a noble family as a servant. When they did not hear from their daughter, the family raised concern, and an investigation was made. Elizabeth was arrested in December of 1610. Being of noble birth herself, Elizabeth could not be placed in jail, so she was forced to live as a prisoner in her own castle. It was said that she was walled into her chambers, but who knows for sure. I hope so. She died on the 21st of August, 1614, at the age of 54. Well, that's a good one, John. But I can top it. Undoubtedly, the most famous vampire of all is Bram Stoker's evil creation, Dracula. While the novel Dracula is a work of fiction, the name of the vampire came from an actual Wallachian prince, Vlad Tepish, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, and Vlad Dracula, which means son of the dragon. You see, his father was Vlad Dracul. Stoker knew virtually nothing about the real Dracula, but thought the name sounded cool, and he liked the vampire myths he had read, so he linked them together in a Reese's peanut butter cup moment, and the rest is literary history. At least for people outside of Romania, where Vlad is thought to be a national hero, not a blood-sucking fiend. Vlad fought to keep Wallachia free from the Turks, who were intent on conquering the area along with other tracts of land. For that, the Romanians see him as their George Washington. But he had some nasty habits. One was impaling people. After one victory over the Turkish invaders, Vlad ordered all of those captured to be impaled on sharpened stakes. The higher the victim's rank, the taller his stake. Vlad not only had problems with the freaking Turks, though, but the goddamn Saxons were knocking on the western door, wanting their grubby mitts on Wallachia. After liberating the town of Brasov, Vlad not only had the Saxons killed, but he turned against the townsfolk themselves. Vlad ordered 41 local merchants to be impaled and 300 other peasants to be burned at the stake. It was said he would walk amongst his own troops after battles, checking on the wounded. If the wounds were on the front of a soldier, he was given a medal. If the wounds were on the back of the soldier, he was impaled. Because Vlad assumed these soldiers received their wounds while running away from the battle. I would make the same assumption. I have, uh, but I mean, Lord, what if you just twist or turn? You should have been stabbing somebody. I seem to recall reading that one of his methods of impalement was this. The sharpened point of the stake would be coated with some sort of grease, and then the victim would be slowly lowered onto the point so that he straddled it. The grease would assist the point in penetrating the posterior and sliding on up through the victim. Now, don't quote me on that, 
but I'm pretty sure I read it. Oh, I think you did read it. And I also read that, uh, keep in mind, a lot of this were the Ottoman forces. So they were Muslim. And he used pig grease to make certain that they all went to hell. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Now, I definitely recall that Vlad would eat banquets among the impaled victims as they suffered and died around him. So far as vampirism is concerned, though, Vlad was definitely bloodthirsty, but not a bloodsucker. So literary license was taken. Yes. And a great literary work ensued. Sure. Sure. You know, though, there are other kinds of the undead. The word zombie first appeared in English in 1819, recorded in a history of Brazil, though the concept actually originated in Haitian tradition. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary for those not in the know, posits that the word's entomological origin is found in Western Africa. Congo words nzambi, god, and zumbi or nzambi, fetish. According to Wikipedia, the word may have derived from the Congo word vrumbi, that is a ghost, a revenant, a, a corpse that still retains the soul, or nvambi, a body without a soul. According to folklore, in order to create a zombie, a voodoo doctor or a priest, known as a bokor, would exhume a recent burial and then perform various rituals and spells while injecting various potions into the corpse. After the corpse becomes reanimated, the bokor would use it to exact vengeance on rivals or enemies, or use it to perform mundane or heavy labor. This overly simplified explanation of the actual method of zombification is derived from Nathan S. Klein's Zombie in Haiti. You can find this online at sites.duke.edu. A voodoo doctor or priest prepares a mixture thought to contain herbs, powdered human bones, and powdered blowfish, among other items. This potion is known as a coup de poudre, powder strike. It may be ingested, inhaled, or injected. But once the concoction has been applied to the victim, it starts to take effect, causing immobility, slowing the heartbeat to an imperceptible rate, and slowing respiration, leaving the victim as to what appears to be a corpse. While in this death-like condition, the victim is still fully awake and aware of his surroundings. Now, once he's been declared dead, the apparently lifeless victim is quickly buried to avoid decay brought on by the heat and general lack of refrigeration. The boker then travels to the gravesite and exhumes the body within eight hours of the burial to prevent actual death by suffocation. The priest dispenses a compound known as the zombie's cucumber. Yeah, I know what that is. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Which might contain the hallucinogenic detura, reviving the victim. In this state, the zombie cannot speak, has no memory, and no longer resembles its past human personality. Further doses are then reapplied to keep the zombie in a dazed and submissive state. This unfortunate victim is then usually forced into working as a slave, performing farm labor and construction work. Um, do you happen to know, is a zombie's cucumber green? I don't actually know. In 1969, George Romero forever altered the concept of zombies without even actually using the word in his film, Night of the Living Dead. Romero's revenants are flesh-hungry corpses brought to an undead existence not by a bokor, but possibly by radiation carried to Earth by a returning probe that went to Venus. 
Rather than laboring in sugar plantations, these creatures mindlessly roam about until spotting a living human, then they relentlessly pursue that unfortunate soul until they capture him, or they are dispatched by trauma to the brain. This view of zombies has permeated literature and film, with the occasional substitution of brain-hungry rather than flesh-hungry traits. Really, though, if you really talk about this one, it's what is almost the textbook definition of a ghoul. Yeah, more like a ghoul. And actually, I think in the movie, they called them ghouls at least once. Really? Hey, Jimmy. What? Tell me about mummies. Uh, they're the opposite of daddies. <laughs> yes, indeed. Mummies, I actually thought were an interesting choice for inclusion here. Because outside of the Universal and Hammer movies, and then the newer ones with uh, Brendan Fraser and uh, Tom Cruise... I don't think of them as living dead. Have you ever come across any myths in which a mummy came back from the afterlife? Or were you thinking more along the movie lines? No, it's actually uh, the mummies are terrorizing the living, but they do it via the curse, right? The mummy's curse has always been how a mummy will get revenge upon the living. Ah, that's true. Yeah, like the curse of Tutankhamun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But that's kind of boring to watch. Animating the dead body, kind of like, again, like a ghoul, is more fun. And then lastly, we come to ghosts or spirits or apparitions, specters. There are dozens of names for this entity. Yeah, there are. And for me, ghosts are almost right up there with the vampires. I love a good ghost story. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Hill House by Richard Matheson. The Shining by Stephen King. Oh, man. And though it moves a little slowly, I even dig The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And then you have your homespun personal ghost stories that friends confide to one another over a few too many beers or campfires. Ghosts are great. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Everyone knows what ghosts are, though, so we won't spend too much time on them in this episode. Maybe in later outings, we'll delve into specific hauntings. But what we do have to do is this, right? Ghosts are thought to be the soul or spirit of a dead person or animal that continues to roam the earth after the corporeal body has died, even after its decomposition. And ghosts can take a wide variety of forms, ranging from orbs of light to pockets of mists, to fully formed bodily apparitions. They're believed to haunt places and objects with which they were associated while alive, and ghosts may also haunt the people that they knew in life. Some hauntings are thought to be the result of an intense desire to correct a wrong, or for, you know, revenge. But what are ghosts physically made of? I mean, if you're going to see them, there's got to be something there, right? Right. So suggestions include ectoplasm, a thick, sticky substance exuding from a medium or the ether, the substance is used by spirits when creating a physical manifestation. Or maybe it's a psychic projection. Spirits may be made of pure energy and project their desired appearance to people of their choice. Some famous ghosts are Anne Boleyn, who's said to haunt the Tower of London, as well as her childhood home, Hever Castle, the Brown Lady of Rainham Hall, in Norfolk, England. Abraham Lincoln's ghost has been seen in the White House. And then there's the vanishing hitchhiker, seen along various roads throughout the world. One uh, famous example of the vanishing hitchhiker is Resurrection Mary, who hangs out near Resurrection Cemetery in Chicago. She uh, 
is seen by people as they drive down the road as this young woman in a fancy dress. They stop, pull over, ask her if she needs a ride, and she says yes and gets in the car, tells them where to go. And as they're driving past the cemetery, she disappears out of the car. Ooh, that's creepy. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, stories uh, that concern her. Easy to find them. Yeah. Cool. But some possible alternate explanations for ghost sightings, though, are sleep paralysis, pareidolia, you know, where human brains tend to place an order to shapes to make them understandable, like seeing a face in the clouds. Infrasound. Humans can't hear sounds below 20 hertz, but some people subconsciously respond to lower frequencies with feelings of fear or dread. Could be electromagnetic fields. A 1980s experiment by Michael Persinger, in which participants wore helmets delivering a weak magnetic stimulation, caused 80% of his test subjects to feel an unexplained presence in the room. And then there's the plain old power of suggestion. If you're a believer and are told a place is haunted, you may be more likely to see that spirit, even if it happens to be an urban legend. Lastly, some people think it's carbon monoxide poisoning. It can induce hallucinations and cause illness. Oh, can it ever. Uh, so there you have it, a synopsis of the undead creatures that creep about our myths and our dreams. I hope it was everything that anyone hoped for. Oh, and next time, Jim, I believe you are continuing the horror-filled Halloween-y October theme, right? Oh, yeah. Well, until then, we'll sign off with the usual. What Do You Think About is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music is provided by Podsummit.com. Thanks to Hunter Doomruth for production assistance. And as always, thanks to you, our listeners. Please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. Drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com. Visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm slash wdouta for updates on releases. Copyright 2020 by John Gordos and Jim Doomruth.